Church, it's good to be able to be here together worshiping. I know there's a handful of us who are worshiping here today, actually in person, as we prepare ourselves for reopening. Well, we're so grateful to the Lord that we actually can look forward to days ahead in which we be, will be able to gather. You know, it's been a hard thing to miss the fellowship of believers and to preach only to a camera lens, but to look forward to the day when we'll be able to gather together and to worship all of us in the same room will be an immense privilege and an immense pleasure. You know, today is Father's Day. And uh, as I was preparing this week uh, for this week's message, I felt as I was in the midst of my preparation that I needed to take a break from the Gospel of Matthew that we've been going through and preach actually a Father's Day sermon instead. I don't do this every year, but this year I felt particularly that I uh, needed to do something of that sort. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that we live in a culture that is... uh, quite varying in terms of the opinions that it has with regards to what constitutes a good father or what is a good family. It's all over the map in our culture, depending on your background, how you grew up, and also your current train of thought. But despite all of that variation, there's really no doubt in anyone's mind that having fathers present is important and that it actually does make a difference. For example, talk to Kyle Pruitt at the Yale Medical School has noted that kids without attentive fathers are actually three times more likely to end up in the criminal justice system before the age of 18 than those kids who actually do have attentive fathers. According to the National Fatherhood Initiative, the absence of fathers means that children are seven times more likely to be teen parents, they're four times more likely to be impoverished, more likely to use drugs and to be addicted to alcohol, and even drop out of school. Now, Despite all of this and the problems that we see in society as more and more homes uh, are faced with this epidemic of fatherlessness, uh, we see that actually overall, I do think that society's expectations of fathers has risen. So for example, if you were to look in the mid-1900s and look at commercials that were made, they depicted fathers as being incompetent caregivers that needed to be rescued by mom to show them how to do a basic thing like to put on a diaper. I remember speaking actually to a person who was a generation above me about his own father and his recollection is that he never remembers his father doing anything like changing a diaper or being involved with the care of the younger ones. That's just not how people did it in those days. Now, fast forward to today and you look at the modern father. The modern father also cooks, also cleans, is able to change diapers and does a lot of these things that a generation before us would never have been. Attending ballet recitals for your uh, daughters, you know, for your daughter is just normal. Now, today in our society, we look at that and we would say that's what a good father is and that anybody who lives differently from that is frowned on in our culture and our society. So the question is, you know, will this stay the same forever? I think it's really important for us to realize, lest we become too proud of ourselves saying that our generation is the best, is to think that maybe in 30 or 40 years, the generation that comes back after us will look back at our generation and say, man, these guys were subpar in terms of what they believed about a fatherhood. I can't believe they only did that. This is what we do instead. Every generation has a tendency to judge the generation before them. And they often said, my dad did this or my generation did this. I will not do that. Now, the question for us, of course, is what does it mean then to be a good father, given that the target established by our culture changes in a matter of just decades? What was good 30 years ago is no longer good today. 
Can we find any certainty with regards to what it means then to be a good father? How do we know that we are being good fathers on Father's Day? And I think the answer to this question is ultimately found in God's word. But I think there's also insight that we can glean from studying the history of how Father's Day developed, especially here in North America. Let me give you a little history lesson, a little synopsis of how Father's Day came about. Now, on December the 6th, 1907, there took place what is considered to be the worst mining disaster in American history. And that is basically an explosion in a coal mine in a place called Monongah, West Virginia, instantly killed over uh, 362 men and boys. And in a matter of minutes, basically over a thousand children in that town became fatherless. Like it was an absolute tragedy because over 200 of the miners were dads and there was no hope basically of recovering. Everything that they were doing is just trying to get the bodies out of there. Grace Clayton was a Methodist minister's daughter who upon reflecting on the absolute tragedy that the town had faced, asked her pastor whether or not they could have a memorial, a time in their service basically to honor the legacy of fatherhood knowing that many of them had lost their fathers. And so they set a date, July 5th, 1908, to be able to have a Father's Day service. However, that day really was not promoted outside of the town and due to other circumstances, it really didn't gain any traction or spread anywhere. Now you fast forward a little bit some two years later, and you find that there was a lady named Sonora Smart Dodd in Spokane, Washington, who was sitting in her church. And after she had heard a passionate Mother's Day sermon, she felt strongly, actually, that a Father's Day um, uh, uh, time was also needed. In fact, Dodd herself had lost her mother at the age of 16, and she was raised by her father, William Smart, who was a Civil War veteran and who had single-handedly chose to raise his daughter and, his, and her five other brothers by himself. Now, Dodd was deeply admired her father because of his tenacity as a single parent, raising his family by himself without the help of a wife. And so she passionately advocated for Father's Day and wanted to commend fathers for the exemplary work that they did. She actually wrote this about Father's Day. A Father's Day would call attention to such constructive teachings from the pulpit as would naturally point out the father's place in the home, the training of children, the safeguarding of the marriage tie, the protection of womanhood and childhood. The meaning of this, whether in the light of religion or of patriotism, is so apparent as to need no argument in behalf of such a day. Those are really strong words, and you realize this, is, this was at basically the beginning of Father's Day. This is, was her original intention. And if you look at that statement, for those of you who are believers and are familiar with the scriptures, you will realize that there are three very strong biblical concepts that come out of her original view from Father's Day. It's foundational to it. First thing that you note in here is one, she mentions the spiritual training of children that's taken from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. The second thing she mentions is the safeguarding, husbands safeguarding their marriages, right? So Ephesians 5.25. And the third thing she mentions in there is the protecting of women and children. And that is drawn specifically from Psalm 68 verses 5 to 6 that speaks of God actually being a father to the fatherless and also being a defender of widows. So I think that just reading her statement and understanding the biblical worldview in which she operated, you realize that was actually what was behind her original vision for Father's Day. So she brought this idea to her pastor, who took it to the Association of Ministers, who then decided then on 
June 19, 1910, to celebrate basically the very first uh, multi-church Father's Day that would eventually go on to birth the modern-day Father's Day movement. Now, despite the fervor that she had and many others around her, the day still had some troubles as many people looked at it as a joke and didn't actually want to take it very seriously and disregarded it. A number of people considered it to be a ploy actually by advertisers to continue to promote commercialization on that day. Most fathers at that time had no interest whatsoever in flowers, and they didn't want uh, their family members spending their, their hard-earned money on gifts for themselves that they felt that they didn't need it. So back in those days, many fathers actually rejected the idea of a Father's Day. However, the day still gained traction actually bit by bit. By 1916, uh, President Woodrow Wilson, himself a Christian, tried to get Congress to declare it to be an official holiday, but he actually failed. So alternatively, Wilson chose to celebrate Father's Day with his own immediate family. Now, President Wilson was actually a very devoted Christian, and he loved the church, he loved the gospel, and he loved serving. It was said of him that he actually he knew his Bible pretty much uh, by heart, and he could quote his Bible even better than many ministers of his day. He was convinced from the scriptures that Christian families were the strongest influences in leading their kids to have faith in Jesus Christ. In one address that he gave to the Pennsylvania Sabbath School Association, that is basically the Sunday School Association, delivered in 1904, he said this, If you wish your children to be Christians, you must really take the trouble to be Christians yourselves. These, those are the only terms upon which the home will work the gracious miracle. And you cannot shift this thing by sending your children to Sunday school. I, I read that quote from the president's archives and I loved it. Basically, this is all before the modern day youth ministry movement took off and gave parents the idea that they could outsource the spiritual formation of their children to paid professionals in large churches. See, President Wilson here understands and says, parents you guys are the ones that are spiritually accountable to God for your children and how they turn out. He wasn't alone, actually, amongst the U.S. presidents to advocate for a Father's Day, I think, that had a biblical framework. In 1924, President Calvin Coolidge, as well, also another devoted Christian president, urged state governments to observe Father's Day. And he declared this, that the purpose for the day was to establish more intimate relations between fathers and their children and to impress upon fathers the full measures of their obligations. See? Relationships with children and the obligations, the duties that were on fathers. You know, Coolidge himself was actually only 12 years old when his mother died, and he was effectively raised for his teenage years by a father alone. Himself, as president of the United States, he carried a lot of burdens, but in 1924, after making the proclamation and the push for Father's Day, he himself experienced tragedy as a father as his own 16-year-old son died in a sudden accident. And despite his grief, Coolidge clung to his biblical convictions. And he stated this, My wife and I bowed to the supreme will, and with such courage as we had, went on in the discharge of our duties. That was President Coolidge. You know, by the 1930s, during the Great Depression, Father's Day had actually become more commercialized. In New York, there was actually a Father's Day council that had been set up by none other than the uh, Associated Men's Wear Retailers. 
to help promote the commercial aspect of the holiday. So things are starting to shift. People began buying gifts, neckties, and other things. They were encouraged basically to shop. Following World War II, advertisers actually began saying, support the troops that are at war. Support the troops who are coming home by buying stuff. And so that is how the commercial aspect of Father's Day began to spread. Today, if you look at Father's Day, Father's Day is actually an enormous commercial day. In fact, over $16 billion are spent, I think, in the United States and North America on Father's Day things. Almost a billion dollars actually just alone on cards, let alone gifts. In 1972, Father's Day finally gained the official recognition that we know today when President Nixon officially designated the third Sunday of June to be the official day on which Father's Day was to be celebrated, a national holiday that he called an occasion for the renewal of the love and gratitude we bear to our fathers. Now, since then, virtually every US, many U.S. presidents have made speeches either on Father's Day or about Father's Day to talk about why Father's Day has been important. But perhaps what is the most interesting to observe in these speeches is the amazing shift that has taken place in the culture and that is visible in their speeches as to what makes a good father. There's been a massive shift. For example, if you look at Senator Barack Obama's speech given before he was president in Father's Day 2008 at the Apostolic Church of God in Chicago, you will see a very different picture of what he considers to be important about fathers. In the half-hour speech that he made, he actually urges parents, fathers specifically, to do a few things. One of them, he says, is to set high expectations for your kids. Second is to give them a really good education, he says. Third thing, he says, is to give them a solid work ethic, to teach them things like empathy, and above all else, he says, finally, to give them hope. Hope. Now, it's really odd when you look at this speech or kind of sermon that was delivered in this church, and if you were to count the number of times that God, Christ, and the scriptures are quoted, you can count them all in less than one hand, basically. It's so strange. It, feels, it does feel much more like a speech rather than a message that should be delivered in a church. In fact, if you look through the whole thing, and I read through the transcript of it, and I watched sections of it, there's no mention whatsoever of training children up to love God. Nothing given to talk about their faith in Jesus Christ, but a very generic message that can be received by anybody, Christians and non-Christians alike. So what's my point in this when, I, when you look at that? My point is this. My point is that the original Father's Day was actually birthed in the context of the local church. It was passionate Christians who, driven by a biblical worldview of the importance of fatherhood, who strongly advocated for a day to remind people of the duties that fathers had before an almighty God to family, friends, and their country, for people all around them. See, the modern Father's Day, I would say, has lost its connection to the original Father's Day and the biblical fatherhood that was advocated and assumed by Sonora Dodd and the presidents Woodrow and Coolidge. This is what they assumed and believed in. The modern Father's Day advocates for care and compassion without a connection to the cross of Christ. It advocates for college education without speaking about the more important education of being schooled in Christ. The modern Father's Day advocates for a solid work ethic without reference to a divine law. And the modern Father's Day advocates for hope in human effort rather than hope and trust in an almighty God through whom all things exist. It is so different. Now, let me just say this. Okay, looking at recent statistics here in Canada, 
we, we see that dads are doing a better job in many things. Dads are taking more parental leave these days. They're talking with their kids more than ever before. They play with them. This is all great. And I think we should commend these things. However, I don't, it's important for us not to forget that whose opinion ultimately matters is not us or our cultures, but what God has to think about fathers. What does God commend in a dad? And I would say that from the Bible that what God commends in a father, first and foremost of all, is devotion to him. It's devotion to him and being able to train children up to love Jesus. Now, there's a lot of things that I'm going to say, but I'd like to touch that we could say about this, but I'd like to touch on just six things, six things from the Bible that I'd like to emphasize today. I think that the scripture highlights about God's expectations for fathers who follow him. Okay, six things that I'll go through. One, you'll never hear this in our culture, but this is what God expects. Number one, a godly father trains his family in the Christian faith. You read Ephesians chapter 6, verses, verse 4. It says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, many of us have heard this before, but it's worth noting, right, that here is a text in which we learn that fathers are accountable to God for their children's Christian education and learning how to live out their faith as adults. You know, discipline here, the word refers, I think, to the whole process of being educated in Christ and learning how to correct ungodly, learning how to not live ungodly, to correct ungodly behavior. Instruction, I think, has more of a reference to verbal exhortation. That is, you hearing about what is right and how to live. Encouragement to do so. Furthermore, fathers, you learn here, aren't only responsible to do this, but in this text, you learn they're to exercise great wisdom in not unnecessarily provoking their children to anger, even as they carry out this function to correct their children so that they walk in Christ and discipline them and to instruct them. You know, it was a famous preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a family man, and he loved his children, but his love actually didn't just stop there. His love as a father even extended over to his grandchildren as well. You know, there's a story told about how his grandson once got very interested in transcendental meditation, which was all the rage in England in the 1950s due to a best-selling book called The Third Eye, written by a man named Lobsang Rampa. Now, Lloyd-Jones read this book, didn't laugh at the young man, but he actually read this book very carefully, this great scholar himself, and he systematically dismantled the author's arguments and uh, worked with his teenage grandson, Jonathan, to help him to see what the problems were with his book. You know, that author, Lobsang Rampa, actually turned out later to be a fraud, but that actually wasn't what was the most important. What really mattered here was that the instruction that Lloyd-Jones gave, not just to, not just to, uh, uh, what he gave to his grandson here, was delivered actually in love and not just thoughtless anger or dismissiveness. He didn't provoke his grandson to angry. What was amazing was that he took his grandson very seriously instead of dismissing him, and he gave him answers and dignified him with intellectual argument. And as a result, his grandson loved him for it. I think we can all take a page out of Martin Lloyd-Jones' book in the way that we can work with our children as well. You know, fathers, it is so easy to crush a child's spirit by being harsh when they fail or being dismissive when they succeed or to focus only on whether they bring home an A or a B instead. There's more to it than what they come home with on their report card. 
No, we are called as fathers to be master teachers who help our children cross the chasm from childhood to biblical man adulthood. And that chasm is very wide. And the way that we are to do it is by giving them simple, well-crafted biblical stepping stones so that they can hop from one place to another and over time cross that huge chasm without being unnecessarily discouraged, crushed, or without falling. We lay them out in this way so that they can walk the narrow road that leads to life as adults who love Jesus. And see, whether this is confronting your children and correcting their attitudes when they lose a board game, for instance, or to helping them better how to use their smartphone or to be more disciplined in life, or perhaps just singing praises to God around your family's home or teaching them to love Jesus and to read their Bibles regularly, whatever it is, The point is this, we as fathers are spiritually responsible to an almighty God for their Christian education and upbringing. See, you might never bear the burden as a father of leading a church or being a pastor over people or shepherding, you know, a flock that is given to your care. But the truth is, as a father, you still have a little flock that has been entrusted to you and the master urges you to carry out your duties to them and to honor that his Honor the charge that he has given you. Nourish that little flock that is in your home. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 9 says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And you shall be, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And that's what it says to Israelites and by token us as well. You know, my family is currently reading through Robert Murray McShane's uh, one-year Bible reading plan. And this is what I do with my kids. Every morning we gather around the table. Except we're doing it over the course of two years so we can slow it down and I can really work with them through the text. I have to filter some things, adjust some things to make it easier for them. But basically, we work through the Bible over the course of two years. As we've been plodding through each day, it's actually been amazing to see what's happened to my kids. They don't just hear about the Bible. They actually begin to feel the Bible story as well. They don't just know it. They feel it. I remember once as we've been reading through, you know, the books like Leviticus, you know, and Exodus, and Deuteronomy. Some parts in there seem kind of repetitive, as I would read these things over and over again, I remember one day my kids groaning and putting their hands on the table and saying, Dad, why don't they get it? Why don't they get it? Why do they just keep sinning? And I thought about it. I'm like, that's exactly it. You know, this is a golden opportunity. That's exactly it. You feel it. Why do they keep on sinning? That's exactly how God feels. And you know what? That's a great lesson for us. When we look at our own lives as well, do you feel that? If God were to look at us and say, why do you keep on sinning? And this is one of the benefits of reading the Bible with your children regularly. Let them feel the weight, you know, of the biblical story. And they realize there about the nature of sin. We shouldn't be proud as well because this happened to them to show us the ridiculous nature of sin and how we often fail God and how there was mercy and redemption for them. Is there not redemption for us? As exasperated as we feel reading that story, could not God be exasperated with us? And yet, he chose not to treat us as our sins deserve, but to give us grace through the work and person of Jesus Christ. 
a glorious thing that you can do for your children. Read the Bible with them. If you don't have a plan, I would suggest you get one, actually, and read the Bible out loud with your family every single day. In as far as you are able to, make it a point to read the Word of God regularly. The greatest education in the world is not found in the halls of Cambridge. It's found in the school of Christ. You might be an uneducated father. You might not be very skilled at reading, but you can model Jesus to your children and read God's word to them. Train them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Number two, a godly father models for his family the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Paul speaking, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You know, we learn from this text, as well as numerous other texts in the New Testament, that the imitation-worthy life is the Christian life. You know, when Jesus speaks and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Or when the author of Hebrews urges believers to say, imitate your leaders and follow and have their outcome of life. See, the point is, you can't just pass on a living faith that you don't actually have. You can't pass on a living faith if that faith doesn't live in you. And the command in the New Testament all over is to say, you live it and you speak it. Set the example in not just words, but in deeds as well. If your faith is alive, a living faith will show up in the way that you live. You can't avoid it. You know, Adam LaRoche was a famous Major League bas- Baseball player who modeled sacrifice for the kingdom by walking away from a $13 million baseball season because he felt it was interfering with his ability to be a father to his children. You know, sometimes being a father can be very costly. But do you know what's even more costly than $13 million? Your soul. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world if you lose your soul? You know, in seminary I, had a, a seminary, I had a professor who modeled love for his wife and the importance of marriage in this way. Every time that he came home to see his, like, you know, eight kids or so, he would make sure actually to grab his wife and he would kiss her first before he gave kisses and hugs to the rest of the kids. They all had to patiently wait until daddy kissed mommy before they could get their turn. And he did this very intentionally because he said it communicated to them that Christ and a marriage that represented Jesus Christ was foundational to that home. That was the bedrock of their home. And therefore, he always wanted to do this. So he said it got really awkward for his older children who were kind of like, oh, it's kind of embarrassing, you know, every single time. But he said the, old, the younger kids loved it and they would cheer and they would say, Daddy, do it again, do it again. Model it. Model it in your home. Now there's different ways for how we'll do that, you know, in our homes and so on. But the point is, do you model that in your home? Does, do your kids know? Does your family know that your marriage is very, very important? I would say to you dads as well, model God's Delight in his relationship with you. Model that, the relationship you have with God, and and transfer into the relationship that you have with your children by delighting and playing with them, spending time with them. You know, in the Old Testament, for example, you realize that God actually commanded his people to regularly work six days a week and to rest one day, but then also to celebrate festivals and feasts, basically to be happy and to spend time in relationship with each other, laughing and enjoying themselves God commanded these things. He threatened very bad things to them if they would not find their happiness in him and each other. God is very serious about us, not only worshiping him, but also enjoying each other and having fun. But it is the wise father who knows, just like God, how to put the two together. 
The godly father should be known not just for his playing, but also for his praying as well and mixing the two together. I would also say to you dads, model your delight in God through singing in your home. You know, Colossians 3.16 commands us to sing songs and spiritual songs to God and to make melody to God in your heart. Singing is not optional, actually, for Christians. You know, in our home, we sing regularly throughout the day. And also every night, we set aside a time through our evening uh, children's, you know, our, our, our evening set of reading uh, to also sing a few songs. And all the kids get to pick their favorite songs, whatever. And we sing together. I play the guitar and we do this. Even our baby understands this. Uh, she likes singing as well. She understands it's a part of our life. In fact, it's interesting. Whenever I go to change her diaper, um, she looks at me while she's lying there. She has nothing to do. And she insists, actually, that I sing for her and lead her in some sort of singing. And so one of her favorite songs is, Holy, Holy, Holy. So she'll glare at me from the table and say, Daddy, Holy, Holy, Holy. Holy? Holy? And I'm like, okay, well, I'm trying to change diaper, sing Holy, Holy, Holy to you. Other times, actually, she wants to sing um, the Lord's Prayer in Swahili. Now, this is really funny because this is what my, my kids have taken off. They can't learn it in English. Just play them a very upbeat version of the Lord's Prayer in Swahili, and they will learn it even if they don't understand the language. They dance around the house singing this song. So there's her lying there on the table. She says, Dada, Baba Yetu Yetu Liye. So she, you know, they have this line, which means our Father who is in Binguni Yetu Liye. So our Father who is in heaven. And so you hear them belting this thing out. And my little baby, who can barely pronounce the words, insisting there, if I won't sing Holy, 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 she says, Baba, Baba Tutu. But I said, Baba Tutu. And I have to look at her and start singing this Swahili song, of which I know just a few lyrics of, because I don't really speak Swahili. But the worship of God, train your children up to worship God. Let, let the word of God saturate and be rich in your home. Don't fake it. Just make it a part of your home. Worship God and your kids will love you for it and your home will be a singing home. See, my point is model Jesus Christ in all you do, all you do, fathers. Third thing here. A godly father is not perfect, but a godly father is a persevering father. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, uh, God declares of David that he is a man after God's own heart, and he looks very favorably on him. Now, don't make the mistake and think that David was a perfect man. He murdered, he sinned against God, he failed to fight for his children. In fact, the list of his failures is quite spectacular. But David was also a very deeply convicted man who honored God, who longed to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, who declared the praises of God by writing dozens of psalms. He said that God's word was more valuable to him than honeycomb on his lips. And he also danced before God, absolutely unashamed before the ark, in front of all his people, because he wanted to worship the Lord. You know, see, godliness is not trying to add up all your good deeds and seeing if they outweigh your bad deeds, or even comparing how much you've done compared to others. Godliness is defined by the passionate pursuit of holiness and repentance when you do fall. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You know what this verse assumes here? This verse assumes that we will sin each, against each other. And this verse assumes there will be times when we are tempted to be unkind to each other and that we need to be tenderhearted to each other. And when we are sinned against, forgive each other. And whether that happens in the local church or in the family, these are opportunities to choose and display godliness, forgiveness, even as God forgave us. Your family needs to see that in you, dads. Dads, your families need to see you apologize for your failures, for your sins. They need to see you repent of your sin and to make steps 
to not live that way anymore, but by the power of the Spirit to live a godly life and not to be complacent in your sin. See, ungodly fathers can pass on a legacy of destruction and sin, but as a godly father, you have an opportunity to pass on something very different, a legacy of perseverance and a demonstration of the power of God in a changed life. The power of God in your imperfections. Number four, a godly father may not have physical children, but can have spiritual children. Now, Paul says in Philemon chapter 1, verse 10, this, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. You know, this is really interesting here, because you realize from this verse and many others in the New Testament, that to invest in others for the sake of the gospel is actually to be a spiritual leader or to be a spiritual father in someone else's life. You may not have biological children, but you can still be a spiritual father. You know, years before I became a pastor and, became, uh, and got married, I actually took a time to invest in a number of young men who were growing in their walks with the Lord. I lived with them. I ate with them. I fed them. I did their homework as well for them. Well, not for them, but with them, you know. It's just all these things. I played video games with them and all kinds of things, you know, to serve them and love them. And I, I really cared for them. Yeah, so such a joy, actually, to my heart as I think about them. I just spoke to one last week to think about how they're walking with Jesus today and to see them working and laboring for the kingdom and prizing Jesus above everything else. Of all the titles I could wear, you know, in my life, it's not my degrees that count for anything or even the title of pastor. There's nothing that can replace the title of father. And to know that I'm not just a physical father, but a spiritual father to others gives me absolute joy in my own soul and my heart. You know, one of these young men is studying uh, Hebrew, actually, right now. And probably even in his short amount of studies, he's probably even way more proficient than I am after having gone to seminary with that. And I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of him that he's reading the Hebrew Bible. You, know, you don't have to be, have kids to be a spiritual father. So dads and single men who are here, don't think that this doesn't apply to you as well. If you have no kids whatsoever, spiritual fatherhood applies to you as well. You know, sometimes, though, spiritual adoption does coincide with physical adoption, and the two become one. I love the story of Chelsea Sobolik, who was adopted as a baby from Romania, and she was raised by a godly father. And she writes this about him in a letter. While biology says you weren't my original father, love says something else. Blood is the least of what makes a family. Godly love is the real lifeblood of a family. You have loved me like God the Father loved me. A lot of people ask if I'm interested in meeting my real dad. And what they mean is, do you want to meet your biological dad? Daddy, she says, they just don't seem to get it, do they? You are the one who traveled the world, crossed the world to search me out. You are the one who gave up a comfortable life in order to give me a life. You are the one who rescued me. I was an orphan and you chose to call me your own. I was fatherless and you chose to be my father. But most important, you've chosen to love me. You chose to love me the day you saw me and said, That girl is mine. She's my little girl now. And you've chosen to love me every day since. I know that many times I haven't been lovable, but I am your daughter. And so you have committed to loving me well, even though I don't deserve it. You know, if you're a single guy here, this also applies to you as well. Sure, you might not be able to adopt right now, 
But maybe the question is, maybe you will have a family one day and you'll be able to physically adopt and train up this adopted child to love Jesus. But even if you don't, can you not adopt people in this world to be your own spiritual sons in the faith who will love Jesus because you chose to be a father to them and to demonstrate to them a tangible picture of the God in heaven who is a father to the fatherless of this world? You can do a lot. Do not waste your singleness. Or if God has not chosen to give you children, do not waste the opportunity that you have to be a father to the fatherless men. You know, perhaps you're a stepdad actually here, and you came to know Jesus later in life, and you have all these non-biologically related, non-biologically related children around you because of your marriage. I would urge you as well to take the opportunity to be a father to them. Be a gospel-centered spiritual father who models Jesus in all that you say and all that you do so that they might be introduced to a God that they could never have known. Lead them to have a share in the blood of Jesus Christ, even if they do not share the blood that courses through your veins. Okay, number five. A godly father fights for his family on his knees. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 is a particular favorite of mine, and it says, pray. Pray without ceasing. You know, a godly father must fight for his family on his knees. You know, John Payton was a famous missionary to the cannibal colonies of the New Hebrides. And he talks about how his own godliness and devotion and his prayers were inspired by his father's prayers as well. And he wrote this about his dad. How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain. Nor could any stranger understand when on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for every personal and domestic need. We all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love him as our divine friend. Now, Peyton's dad himself wanted to go into the ministry, but for some reason was prevented. But because he was prevented, he vowed to God that he would dedicate his children to the service of God, and his prayers won, it, won out in the end of the day. Peyton also wrote this when his father was sending him off, not knowing if he would ever see him again. His father said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could. I caught a glimpse of him, his face toward home, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft, by the help of God, to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father or mother as he had given me. That was John Payton's dad. You know, fathers, those of you who are listening today, my question is, do your children actually know that you regularly fast and pray? Do your children know that your heart breaks for the things of God? Do you guys pray over important decisions as a family, whether it's buying a car, figuring out where you're going to move, or discussing schooling options? Do you pray together about these things? Does your heart break in prayer for what God breaks, breaks God's heart? And do you have a heart for the lost as well? You know, I love what Tim Keller actually has to say about prayer. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. See, if you want your children to know God intimately, 
then you yourself must know Him intimately in prayer. Become a 3 a.m. type prayer warrior, one who bangs on the door of heaven constantly and walks into the presence of the King and makes your requests of Him because you're a child of God. Let your children see that in you. Brothers and sisters, we have that kind of access, the ability to walk into the throne room of the King at 3 a.m. and ask Him for simple things like a cup of water. That is our Father's delight towards us. Last thing, number six. A godly father is first and foremost devoted to God. I love what Proverbs 14.26 has to say. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. I love that because it tells us here that the best shelter for children and a family is a God-fearing man It's not your pun, your money, your power, your status in society, your educational background, the quality of your job. God could take all of those things from you in a moment. They're worthless. Your family's ultimate security actually lies in God. And therefore, that is why, as a man, if you really love the safety and security of your family... You will learn to fear God and to find your ultimate joy in Him. That's the ultimate security that you can purchase for your children. I remember an old pastor telling a story about his dad and how they loved to go have uh, sunrise services on a mountain. And he said that his father loved Easter Sunday. And every time a church member pulled up in their car to join the service, his dad would go running down the mountain and start yelling at the top of his lungs, He is risen indeed! And wave his hands. So embarrassing, he said, as a teenager, to watch his dad make that kind of a scene. But as an older man now, he says, looking back, he realizes that how much he admired his father for that. His father's devotion and what a privilege it is it was for him to grow up in a home of such a God-fearing and a God-honoring man. Yeah, you may be awkward to your family, to your kids now, but one thing that can never be hidden, devotion for God, will truly always be admired by his people. You know, fathers, I want to say to you as we conclude this, you can't ultimately save your children. I know that. You can do all these things and you can still go through major battles with your kids. However, God has called you to lead your home and he promises to bless you for your faithfulness. Second Samuel 23 verses 3 to 4 says this, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. You know, the point is this. Leading a family, I know it's tough. I remember reading about one CEO who said, Raising my four daughters is is tougher than leading my $25 million company. You know? But the dying words of King David here in 2 Samuel 23 show us this, that men who fear God will be the ones who bring a refreshment and healing to their families, will build them up actually in love. You want to save your family? You want to love your family? Be a God-fearing person and God's reign and His grace will shower on them like a flood. You know, church, I want us actually to recover our roots here in North America. I want us to remember the original vision of Father's Day. I want us to remember that God has called us fathers to do spiritual work in our families and to live exemplary lives and to teach our families the truth from God's Word. And we plead in His mercy 
That after we have done the work of laying fire starter, kindling, and twigs, and logs in our daily faithfulness and our exhortations to our kids, that one day the Spirit of God will come and set that tinder ablaze and let our children burn brightly for Jesus Christ. We can never do that, but God has privileged us to lay the foundation for Him. This Father's Day, my encouragement to you is, don't let yourself be measured by your culture's expectation of what it means to be a father and simply stop there. There are many good things that we do, but ultimately we are to be measured by God's standard. What does God require of us? So fathers, don't be passive. Don't thrust spiritual leadership onto your wife and let her languish because of your lack of leadership. Take ownership of it. Lead as a man that God has asked you to be. Take the leadership in leading your family and devotions. If you're not a good reader and your wife is, ask her to read. But you take the leadership in doing this. Set the spiritual tone of your home. Let your children and your family all know that what is most important is that dad rises in the morning and that his devotion to read God's word and to make sure that his day and the family's day is in accordance with the will of God. Let them all understand that that's your primary driver in this life. Don't abdicate your responsibility. Perhaps there's some of you after this, listen to this, might have to call a family meeting. And you might actually have to repent before your family and say, family, I have not done a good job in leading us well, but from today forward, based on my convictions, I want to do better. And by the power of God and through His Holy Spirit, I trust that He will help me lead you in a way that I could never have done by myself. Or maybe if you're not quite there yet, maybe what you need to do afterwards is you go home and go talk to your wife. Maybe lie there on the bed before you go to bed and just confess. Talk to her about your struggles. Talk to her about what depresses you. Talk about your your failures as a husband and how you want her help to help you. I guarantee you she she will not crush you, but she will help you. She will help you if she can see that there's a genuine change about you wrought by the Holy Spirit. If you need help, you know, talk to one of our leaders. Get some brothers to help hold you accountable. Pray together and seek God. Now, I know change can be tough initially, but we all know this, right? Renovation work is messy. And when you first start renovation work, it looks like you're going backwards because even the ugly functionality or what little functionality your room had is now all gone. But it won't stay there forever. Renovation work has an end, and the end result will be better than the beginning. Don't worry, friends, if you can't see the results initially. This is what it means to live by faith. You think about Abraham, what it meant for him to live by faith? That guy was promised to have descendants as numerous as the stars. And yet, he had his first child at 100, and he had his first grandchild at 160. And when he died at 175, he had two teenage grandsons, 15 years old, Jacob and Esau, who hated each other. And then he died. That's not a lot in terms of fulfillment of a promise to have numerous descendants. And yet we all know what happened to Abraham's children who became the nation of Israel one day. See, just because he couldn't see it doesn't mean that God is not at work. God rewards faithfulness and that is our duty as fathers. To see with the eyes of faith and not the eyes of flesh. It's a tough job that we have, fathers. But God equips those whom he has called. I wrote a poem for us, fathers, this week as I was praying and reflecting on what to say to you. And as I thought about Ephesians chapter 6 and I reflected on God's high calling for fathers, I wrote this. And I hope as we end this way that this will be an encouragement to you, fathers. The godly father wakes each day to seek the king and walk his way. He wages war on demon foes, on fleshly snares and worldly woes. God's truth he wears around his waist. With honest words, his mouth is graced. With righteous works, 
adorn his chest. To those in need, he gives his best. He comes in peace to those irate and snuffs the blaze of strife and hate. A shield divine protects his heart and blocks the tempter's flaming dart. A gospel helm upon his head gives strength to win or any dread. His battle sword, the living word, stabs to life those who have heard. He fights this war with prayer and pleas, with cries to God while on his knees. He serves his home, his church and friends, for poor lost sheep his soul contends. With holy words, he leads his wife and builds his home through sacrifice. His little ones he loves and guides through seasons fair and raging tides. A father's walk and Christ-like love reflect the heart of God above and show to all our Father's face love for sinners and saving grace. Let's pray, church. Father in heaven, thank you for being a father to us. I know, Father, there are many today who are either missing their fathers or who have ungodly fathers who abused them or deserted them. And this is a painful day for them. Father, I beg you even now, would you be a father to those who are fatherless? Would you draw close to them, especially today on this Father's Day? For those who have had godly fathers, oh God, I pray you would hear their prayers of praise and thanksgiving for you giving them such godly fathers. For the young men here today who are not fathers yet, but might be spiritual fathers in the next few days as they take on young people and lead them to know Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would give them the privilege and joy of doing so. Father, I think of many of them, oh God, who are singles today. And maybe they will marry, oh God, and have children one day. I pray, Father, that they will be experienced dads the day their first child is born. Not because they've had other children, but because they've had experience in discipling other spiritual children. And they will know what to do with their young child. For fathers who are listening today, O God, and whom you are convicting, I pray, Father, you would soften their hearts if they have been in sin against you. And they would choose godliness today, repentance, and make a decision through the power of your Spirit to live and honor you in their families. Help them, O God. Help all of us to have the courage to be able to do what is right and to lead our homes for the flourishing of our wives and for the upbuilding of our children that they may look to us and receive a legacy of grace and forgiveness and see the face of our Savior. We pray this, Father, and beg in Jesus' name. Amen.